morning, before he drove my sister and I to elementary school, my dad would be busy in the kitchen preparing banana smoothies and tinfoil-wrapped ham and mayonnaise sandwiches for us to enjoy while watching cartoons in the living room before leaving for school, or on route in the car singing along to Disney soundtracks and Beatles albums. The sandwiches were warm inside the tinfoil, and that somehow made it so much more special. I was always overwhelmed by the sweet artificial taste of Splenda every sip I took of those banana smoothies. And even though, in adulthood today, I don't make my banana smoothies with artificial sweeteners anymore, I still get emotional and nostalgic every time I make one, because they remind me of all those mornings I spent with my dad. Although he was tall and charismatic and traditionally masculine in appearance, my Cuban-Chinese dad was always a very quiet man. He never showered my sister and I with I love yous and I adore yous, the way that parents of most of my non-Asian friends did with them. But every morning, he showed us just how much he loved us with the breakfasts he made. Every night, with the family meals that we shared at the dinner table. And every weekend, with grocery trips where my sister and I were given free range to ravage the cereal and snack aisles as best as we liked. Weekends that always ended with takeout and blockbuster movies, or something along those lines. In most Asian cultures, food is an overwhelming expression of love. It's the cut fruit that your grandmother brings you every time you visit her. The leftovers you're sent home with after dinners at your aunt's or family friend's house. And the dumplings you make with your mom and dad for all of those Asian holidays. But lately, I've been thinking a lot about the inherently contradictory role food holds in Asian cultures. Cultures that champion thinness, especially in women. In today's episode, I'm sharing stories from my own life to unpack this challenge that many Asians and Asian Americans face, reconciling the divergent messages embodied by cultures that are greatly centered around food. Many might think that the emphasis that Asian cultures place on food as symbols of family and community might perhaps be a strong buffer against the pressures to be thin. However, Many of my Asian friends and peers, women in particular, experience pressure to conform to beauty standards reinforced by those same family members and community. Before I dive any deeper into today's episode, quick disclaimer and warning that this episode includes discussions on disordered eating, food anxiety, and body dissatisfaction. I understand that these topics can be sensitive, so if you feel that this content may be overwhelming for you, please feel free to meet me on the next episode or listen with caution. From a young age, I was always told to eat more, indulge in food, and enjoy it with others. But this expression of love, this expression of community, also took on a conflicting meaning in the grander scheme of my Chinese culture a culture whose beauty standards champion thinness and small frames for women. And I've spent most of my life trying to reconcile these divergent messages. Eat more, enjoy your meal, but don't eat too much, or you won't be beautiful. From the ages of 8 through 14, my mother constantly liked to remind me that up until the age of 8, I look like a Chinese doll with my big eyes, 
tall and slim figure and dark, shiny hair. But the story always ends with, but at age nine, you blew up like a balloon, as if overnight. During those years, I saw a side of my mother that I never saw before. Eat less, she said to me. Don't buy bigger clothes for her, scolding my father as he watched me go from a kid small to an adult small over the course of a year. You should have been born a boy, motioning at how husky and ungraceful I was for a girl. And the most hurtful of them all, you look like a little pig. All the while, my dad continued buying me the snacks and food I enjoyed, including sodas, potato chips, and string cheese. And food became almost a safety blanket of sorts. And like most kids, I didn't realize the way it was affecting my body and where my place was in the unforgiving social hierarchy of elementary and middle school because of my body. That was until I got older. For years, it was like this. And although I didn't realize it at the time, these words and these perceptions cut into my identity in an irreversible way. When I turned 12 and started the seventh grade, I was the heaviest that I had ever been, including in my adult life. And I was so fed up with always feeling so unbeautiful, growing up in a period during which thigh gaps and visible collarbones were all over social media that I became determined to transform myself. I didn't have access to a gym at the time, and I couldn't really leave the apartment unsupervised. So I started following Pilates and high-intensity interval training videos at home. This is also when I began monitoring my food intake and downloaded my fitness pal to track my calories. And like many young girls who are exposed to the world of restricting calorie counting, I quickly became obsessive about it and I lost over 20 pounds between the 7th and 8th grade, to the point that none of my classmates from elementary school recognized me. And although I've developed a healthier relationship with food and exercise over time, I'd be lying to you if I said my relationship with my body and with food hasn't undergone countless highs and lows over the years. Periods of cycling between restricting and binging feeling in and out of control, consumed always by feelings of guilt, envy, and shame all at once. As my musings exemplify, frustrations with body image and food often come from within the Asian household. And there's this frustrating and unique experience where the same people force-feeding us excessive amounts of food out of love are also the same ones to point out how much weight we've gained. Before we dive any deeper into the topic, if you've been enjoying this episode and my show so far, I'd really appreciate it if you could please leave a kind review, a rating, and follow this podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening. I really love sharing these stories with you and your support really does help me grow our community. Thank you again so much for listening. I'll be right back. Chapter 1. The Cultural Value Placed on Food and Eating 
food plays a very symbolic role in many Asian cultures, serving as both a practical and nonverbal expression of love. Preparing and sharing meals not only nourishes the body, but it's also a sign of care that enables Asian friends and families to communicate emotions, strengthen relationships, and show hospitality. Like most Asian kids, every phone call that I've ever shared with my Chinese grandmothers has always started and ended with, have you eaten yet? A question that extends further than a simple social acknowledgement. Although it's unclear where this greeting originated, some cite that it was popularized during times when people didn't have enough to eat. So asking whether or not someone had a meal was a means of demonstrating care to others. For many of my Asian American friends, learning recipes from their parents and grandparents was also an intimate experience. One that not only fostered their relationships with their families, but also helped them feel more deeply connected with their heritage. One of my best friends, Elisa, who loves cooking today, grew up making jiaozi, dumplings, and bing, scallion pancakes, with her mom at home. She made them for my friends and I during a Friendsgiving three years ago, and it felt as if she was sharing a part of her childhood and family with us. Food is also used as a gesture of hospitality and welcoming. When hosting guests, it's common for Asian families to prepare an abundance of food to ensure that their guests are feeling valued and nourished. This might include splurging on expensive bottles of wine, seafood, and other groceries, while also whining and dining guests out at nicer restaurants as a way to show respect, honor, and hospitality. For some Chinese families in particular, treating guests to lavish dining experiences is considered a gesture of generosity and a reflection of the host's social status and ability to provide. The choice of restaurant and the quality of food served can also be seen as a reflection of the host's taste, refinement, wealth, and influence. And the efforts aim to leave their guests with a lasting impression of the host. Of course, not all Chinese families practice this approach, and some families prioritize creating a warmer and more welcoming atmosphere in their own homes emphasizing the joy of shared meals and meaningful connections rather than the showiness of the setting. Beyond just welcoming guests, specific kinds of foods often embody symbolic meanings of their own when paired with certain holidays, festivals, or occasions. For example, every Lunar New Year, my family always ensured that there were noodle dishes and a whole fish. Changshou mian, or longevity noodles, are often eaten on special occasions and birthdays as a symbol of long life. Yu, or fish on the other hand, represents abundance and prosperity. This is because in Chinese, the word for fish, yu, sounds similar to the word for abundance or surplus. This similarity in pronunciation creates a play on words, associating the fish with an abundance of wealth and resources. It's a dish that is often served whole, with the head and tail intact, to symbolize a good beginning and end. Similarly, in Korean culture, families often share a bowl of rice cake soup called tukguk during the Lunar New Year as a symbol of good luck and longevity. The white color of the rice cakes is associated with purity, new beginnings, and a fresh start, and it represents this desire for a clean state 
and positive energy for the new year. Moreover, the round shape of the sliced rice cakes, which resemble coins, or the shape of the full moon, symbolizes the completion of a year and the wish for a long and prosperous life ahead. I could go on and on about the tender nuances and symbolisms that different shapes, flavor profiles, and kinds of food have to different Asian cultures. But in this next part of the episode, I want to connect it back to this complex relationship between upholding these cultural traditions centered around food while also adhering to society's physical expectations in these cultures. Chapter 2. The social value placed on thinness and the pressure to conform. When it comes to Asian bodies, some people have this crazy conception that Asians are simply born with smaller frames or smaller bodies because of their genetics. And sure, there are differences in the physical features and average heights for people of East Asian backgrounds compared to their more Western counterparts. But it's not magical genetics or some crazy different diet that necessarily dictate this more skinny norm amongst Asians, Asian women in particular. But rather, it's the psychological importance that is attached to adhering to these long-upheld beauty standards. In many Asian cultures, there's been a historical association between thinness and social status where Being thin is considered a symbol of beauty, of discipline, and self-control. Historically, slender bodies have been associated with a higher social status because it indicated a person's ability to be able to afford a sufficient amount of food and have time for physical maintenance. In a really similar way, lighter skin tones have also been linked to notions of beauty and wealth and social class because they signified that someone had the privilege to not engage in manual labor activities outdoors under the sun. And so over the years, this perception has been reinforced through media, through advertisements, and really cultivated social expectations that promote images of thinness and endorse products or practices that aim to achieve this desired body type. And women, in particular, face intense pressures to conform to this very specific body image. This leads to the pursuit of thinness through various means, which sometimes are taken to extremes. There are unhealthy practices such as consuming diet pills, practicing liquid diet, ignoring their own body hunger signal in order to skip meals or to restrict. And although these standards of beauty continue to evolve and size inclusivity has undeniably become more mainstream the past few years, this line of thinking continues to persist. When I was thinking about this episode, I started looking for research papers and I stumbled upon a 2014 study titled Weight, Body Dissatisfaction, and Disordered Eating, Asian American Women's Perspectives that was conducted by researchers Rebecca Smart and Yuying Song. Essentially, the study analyzed the written narratives of 109 Asian American women who had participated in an online survey on eating behaviors, attitudes, and family relationships reflecting on their cultural background and influences. 
And the study revealed that weight gain, mild body dissatisfaction, and a desire to be thinner were the most common experiences and concerns amongst the women. And nearly one quarter of them had engaged in disordered eating at some point in their life. Although there were a slew of different factors that contributed to their experiences, the most common were actually the emphasis on thinness within their Asian cultures, family criticism of their weight, and comparisons with other Asian women. Going back to my own story, growing up as the ungraceful chubby girl in an Asian household, I'm reminded of how my mother always reminded me that all those hurtful comments that she made about my appearance and eating habits were made out of love and that she had to be the one to tell me that I was fat because no one else would be as honest with me as she would. And in retrospect, I struggle with how I feel about this today. I realize that she said all of those things because deep inside she was struggling with her own monsters and that she wanted the best for my health and that as a woman and one that had actually sustained a career in the entertainment industry at one point, she understood the role that a woman's physical attractiveness played in her social and professional value. And I sometimes wonder if she hadn't been so verbally assertive, so vocal about my appearance all those years, would I have lost all that weight? Would I have looked the way I do today? And would my perception of myself have changed? Something I wonder about all the time is why the person I see in the mirror is someone who is so different than what everyone around me supposedly sees. By American standards, I am tall, thin, athletic, feminine, and generally healthy looking. But by Asian standards, I am not thin. My skin is too dark, and I'm practically Godzilla given how tall I am for a girl. When my mother brought me back to China at age eight or nine, I was being charged at museums and tourist attractions and hotel buffets as an adult because of how tall and how big I was for a little girl. When she took me to buy a qi pao, which is a traditional Chinese gown, I had to have one tailor-made to my measurements because I didn't fit into any of the ones that they made for girls my age. And since losing all of that weight, visits with family friends whenever I'm back always start with, look at how much weight you've lost. You look great. Sometimes followed with backhanded compliments about how athletic my physique looks. Athletic meaning too muscular. Athletic meaning too masculine for a girl. This is something else that I've realized is very common amongst the experiences of my Asian American friends. In most Asian cultures, it's completely normal to greet relatives and family friends with comments on one another's appearance, namely whether or not someone has gained weight or lost weight. This is actually reinforced by the experiences shared in the Smart and Tsong study. One participant comments, quote, I've always been the fattest in my family, which my family members are quick to point out. However, when I recently lost a significant amount of weight, my family members are the first to point out that I'm too skinny. This has me to have a slightly distorted level of body image, end quote. This bluntness when discussing weight and appearance is very different from what's common in American culture, where talking about someone's physical appearance and especially their weight is seen as a really big breach of 
social norm. It's not really perceived as something acceptable to talk about. Another comment that really stood out to me while reading the Smart and Song study was when a girl shared, quote, I find it difficult to be satisfied with my body because part of me believes that my value as a person is related to how I look while the academic and socially conscious part of me wants to reject these socialized norms of beauty. I often feel a mixture of sadness and anger when thinking about my weight. I feel sadness because I'm dissatisfied with my body and wish I could feel beautiful. And I feel anger at myself for buying into the societal beliefs of beauty and for letting others make me feel bad, end quote. I really relate to the experiences and feelings being shared by both of these girls. And I'm sure some of you listening right now do too. Both of their narratives and their points demonstrate the complex, conflicting perspectives on body image, self-worth, and cultural adherence that Asian American women often grapple with, and the emotional challenges navigating social beauty standards and family influences, both Asian and American. This desire to enjoy the cultural experience of food, to indulge and to celebrate with loved ones and to eat more, enjoy your meals and feel cared for. But this idea coexists with the pressure to conform to social beauty standards that prioritize thinness. And as we've seen from these studies and as we've seen from our personal experiences, these conflicting messages often lead to body dissatisfaction, disordered eating behaviors, and distorted body images. The pressure to meet these ideals create guilt and shame when we deviate from them, even in the context of cultural celebration. Every time I visit China, I revert to my old ways, counting calories, restricting my intake to quote-unquote good or safe foods, and trying to summon the willpower it took to stick to the endless rules I made for myself, all the while looking to thinner girls my age around me to keep me accountable. I think the scariest thing about the quest for thinness in Asian culture is how commonly it's passed over in households because it can be so easily disguised as self-care. So I guess the big question now is, how do we address this complexity? And how can we better promote a balanced approach to food and body image in Asian cultures? Chapter three, reconciling the divergent messages. Guys, I'm grateful to be the person I am to have a healthy body that I can run, jump, and enjoy good food with, and to have the privilege of enjoying these delicious meals with my friends and family. And I wish that I could say that recording this podcast episode could grant me the freedom from the stresses of my body image, but truthfully, it doesn't. And it would be unrealistic for me to tell you guys that I suddenly chose to stop caring because I just don't think I'll ever be able to. But what I can do is focus on the privileges that I have been granted as a means of trying to heal that little girl who loved sharing banana smoothies with her dad but couldn't fit into a cheap haul. I share my story in the hopes that it might reach others who feel this way too. 
I think these reflections paired with the findings of the aforementioned research highlight this need to increase awareness, support, and resources to address body dissatisfaction common amongst Asian and Asian American women. Resources that not only promote positive body image and challenge societal beauty standards, both Eastern and Western, but also provide culturally sensitive interventions as they relate to food and family. Nuggets of information on how we can better react when a family member comments on our weight, or how to respond when we're given more food despite communicating that we're full, and even strategies for learning and practicing body neutrality. In the study we talked about earlier, participants identified sources of strength that helped them improve symptoms of cultural and social pressure. Positive changes came primarily from receiving social support and cultivating an internal sense of validation. I think this process really requires for us to, one, recognize that this is happening in the first place, which oftentimes is difficult, right? And to question and challenge these more narrow definitions of beauty that are being perpetuated in your life, maybe not only by your own brain, but those around you as well. And remember to take it upon you to communicate your needs and set your boundaries as well. And I know this is really hard around Asian family members where this is the norm for them, right? There's nothing very difficult about talking about weight or body image, etc. Like, in their minds, they want the best for you. And this is standard practice. But if you feel that you need to disconnect from it sometimes or just stay silent, just let their comments go over your head, that's how you should be. That's what you should practice. I think another really great practice that I've heard a lot of people share when it comes to topics of body image, etc., is speaking to yourself the way that you would speak to a friend if they were airing out the same concerns that you experience. I think when we talk to our friends or we talk to others, we're a lot more kind and we're a lot more compassionate and we see things more clearly or with far less cloudiness in terms of cultural pressures, etc. Because our friendships are often just reduced to this level of like, I want to make you feel good because I care about you. I don't think that's always how we speak to ourselves. And remember, all of these practices take time and patience. You know, be kind to yourself. Please, please, please seek professional help if you need it and surround yourself with a supportive network of people, of friends that uplift and empower you and don't make you feel shameful or guilty or conflicted in any kind of way. That's it for me. Thank you guys so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, share it with other friends and family who might relate and leave a comment on the podcast if you can. Promise I'll talk to you all really soon. 